Hi! Um, so, I'm never really sure how to start these, but, you know, I guess, I guess the whole kind of vibe of this is that we're just gonna see what happens. So, <laughs> but I did write down things to talk about, so there's that, that's kind of cool. Sorry, I've just, um, <laughs> I've been cleaning my room today, and I put some, my, like, my sheets and whatever, I soaked them in OxyClean, and now I'm washing them, and they've been in the wash for, like, an hour, and I just went to go check them, and it still says there's another hour left, so maybe they're fuck dirty. I don't know, though. Um... Yeah, so I can't go to sleep until it's done washing and drying. So, <laughs> I guess I'll see how my night goes. Um, oh, actually, tonight. Tonight, um, so my partner is coming in. They live far away. Well, not that far, about like six, seven hours or so. And um, so they're visiting for the week. So I'm super excited. They're... They actually landed in the city really like half an hour ago or so. So I'm gonna I'm gonna FaceTime with them tonight. And we're probably gonna watch All Stars. But um yeah, like that's my night. <laughs> so what I want to end up doing is reading there's this book I took out at the library. Um, it's called Lives of Lesbian Elders. And I'm just going to read the intro to it, this podcast. That sounds so pretentious. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I want to I go over what I wrote down first. Is um, These are just kind of ideas. We'll see where it goes from there. But, uh... I'm, I'm in a whole bunch of lesbian Facebook groups, and I never really noticed until it started being pointed out, but, like, how often lesbians get, like, left out of LGBT stuff, and then when I started to think about it, like, yeah, like, it's so true, because, um, well, the ones that you see online are, like, those pride positivity, like, those posts with a whole bunch of pride flags and stuff and there'll be like a billion different identities which is like you know whatever teach their own but like um not a single lesbian one and it's like okay like your misogyny isn't cool guys <laughs> like let's be real it's a total woman hating thing and I can't even imagine like how lesbian trans women feel, because, like, trans women already go through so much hardship and just so much respect for, <laughs> for all their struggles, honestly. Um, the, the next note that I wrote down is just being a happy lesbian. So, that is a thing. <laughs> I watched this, um, documentary on 
oh yeah, I guess it's about lesbian elders. Um, so that's topical. And it was talking about the way that lesbians were portrayed in media and stuff like a while ago and how really the only content was those really saucy books of like lesbian forbidden love and then one of them realizes she's straight sort of like they have to leave because blah 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 you know and like it's always super tragic and shit and like if if like we already like right now feel like we've got awful content I can't like I say I can't even imagine a lot maybe I'm just bad at that um <laughs> But no, like, back then, they had, like, nothing, and I didn't get very far into this book, but really, there are, we feel like gay rights have, have advanced so much, but not for, like, lesbians, you know, like, obviously, the same rights, but you know what I'm talking about? Like, we get forgotten a lot which is uh, pretty shitty. Um, so one of the things I saw in one of those uh, Facebook groups was someone saying how, not that they're uncomfortable, but they don't know how to navigate being a lesbian and also wanting to be a teacher. And I was tagged in that post by my partner because I'm studying to be a teacher, you know? And I don't know if you could tell, but I'm a lesbian too. <laughs> so, um, and yeah, I don't know. To I've also been um, taking a law and ethics class for being a teacher. And I don't know, like I haven't specifically seen any case studies are so far in that class about being gay, but I don't know if I can actually fire you for being gay. Well, actually, you know what? In Calgary, with the uh, Catholic school, there was a gay teacher and it caused all this controversy and stuff. And um, so I'm not exactly sure because I know that the public school system versus like Catholic school system is different but um I don't know I was thinking of teaching in the Islamic school right and I just I don't know how that's gonna be because I think my plan if I end up doing that would be to um to wait until I get a permanent position there and then to come out. Like, up until then, I think I'll have to be pretty uh, under the radar, right? Because they can always, I guess, say like that they're choosing to let you go for another reason, but it'll secretly be because you're gay. And like, yeah, so if that's what ends up happening, then that's that. <laughs> um, yeah.
<laughs> I've just got um, ambient noises going around here because I don't have an actual mic yet. I did ask one of my friends and uh, she said she'll loan me one or that I could use it. So hopefully get that organized real soon, which would be very nice because I'm recording this on my iPhone right now. And <laughs> yeah, so those are, um, oh, I've got one more note and then I'll get into this reading. Um, I, I also took out a book about being, um, LGBT and Muslim. And I figured, like, when I posted a photo of that on my Snapchat, a bunch of my friends were interested in it. But it's a really long fucking book. So, what I'd like to do is, um, record some of the stuff from there. I mean, I don't know enough Arabic to read the little definitions they've got in there, but it should be fine. And it might be interesting, because since it's an Abrahamic religion, it might apply to Christianity or Judaism, depending on how you interpret that shit. <laughs> so there we go. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to read the intro for this book, just because my girlfriend's going to be home soon, and I would love to call her. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I don't know why I'm so giggly. Actually, well, I don't know. You ever, you ever just think about how awful it is to smoke using a lighter after you use a vape for a while? Yeah, like, <laughs> lighters fucking suck. My mouth tastes like lighter fluid. Mm. Okay, so, yeah, this, I don't know why I'm stalling. <laughs> I need to just get over my nerves. Like, it's kind of a weird situation or concept or whatever to sit in your room alone and talk out loud. Um, even reading out loud is weird for me because I, I'm fine reading off my phone and whatever, but... I've never, well, not never, obviously, but I haven't practiced reading out loud from a book in so long, so I might not be great with it, but it's practice for when I'm a teacher, and, you know, we'll see how it goes. So, yeah, this is Lives of Lesbian Elders, Looking Back, Looking Forward, and, oh wait, why did my music stop? Am I getting a call? No, I don't think I am. That was so odd. I was worried. I thought, I thought she was calling me, and I'm like, "Fuck! I gotta, I gotta stop recording." No, we good. We good. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah. I just want to give like due credit, credit where it's due, uh, cause I would prefer if uh, this didn't get taken down for copyright reasons. Uh. So it's by. D. Merle Clunas, Ph.D. Karen, I think that's an L or an I. It's not really clear because, you know, it's a line. 
Fredrickson Goldston, PhD, and Pat A. Freeman, PhD. Oh, and Nancy Nystrom, also PhD. This book is from uh, 2005, and that I think that becomes relevant a bit later on, where they talk about more, like, not topical, but just comparing, like, then and now, we're almost like a, no, we are a decade away from when this was published, at least. So, you know, just for context. <laughs> I'm done stalling. Here it is. The intro. My strength comes from my desire. I have a desire to grow in grace. Ernstine, age 75. So, the title head, I'm, you know what, yeah, the title head is, um, Getting Started. The lives of lesbian <laughs> okay. The lives of elder lesbians have simply been overlooked. As women, as lesbians, and as elders, they have been stigmatized and marginalized by US society. Their lives have largely remained invisible in a society that, through much of the twentieth century, criminalized homosexuality in order to enforce heterosexuality. Despite this, the 62 lesbians ranging in, age, ranging in age from 65 to 95 interviewed for this book have lived dynamic lives, drawing upon their resourcefulness, amazing resilience, and independence. Unfortunately, their stories are being lost to time. Without them, our link to the past as well as our understanding of the future is in jeopardy. With professional backgrounds in psychology, social work, and history, the authors began the Looking Back, Looking Forward project as a means to bring our lesbian elders out of the shadows and restore their history, one piece of the collective history of lesbians in the United States. Oh, right, yeah, the it takes place in the U.S. I'm, in, I'm recording this in Canada, so, you know, that's significant to me, but if you're in the U.S., you're probably like, oh, yeah. Normal. Okay. In the early stages of this project, we developed a semi-structured interview based on a set of open-ended questions designed to take approximately an hour to an hour and a half. We searched for older lesbians to interview, but it was difficult finding willing participants. Notices in gay and lesbian publications produced a few responses. We have little doubt that older lesbians' reluctance to be interviewed reflected the impact of the stigma of being gay during the era in which these women were coming of age. The fear and distrust that was so much a part of being lesbian remained strong, especially for those over 65 years of age. As a result, confidentiality was of particular concern. From the few older lesbians willing to be interviewed, we gathered other names. We contacted these women to explain the project and solicit referrals to others who might be interested in participating. Many women granted interviews only after we had established credibility, trust, and fellowship through the process of direct contact. However, as we build trust with each referral and interview, more referrals followed. Although this approach to obtaining participants was successful, it also had drawbacks. drawbacks. The major risk was that this snowball sampling might skew the demographics because of the tendency for people to associate with those of similar age, socioeconomic class, and ethnicity. Despite this potential drawback, 
The sample was, in fact, quite diverse in income, education, and age. Many of these referrals also added to the geographic diversity of the group, providing contacts throughout California, Oregon, and Washington. Personal referrals did open doors, but they did not open all doors. The project team was diverse in terms of class background and race, yet only about 5% of those interviewed were lesbians of color. Life expectancies are generally lower for populations of color, so there may be proportionately fewer of these elders. More important reasons, however, included fear of discovery as well as outright distrust of researchers. One woman of color stated that she had been interviewed for one of the very first lesbian studies and had been misquoted and felt used. She did not trust researchers, lesbian or otherwise. Aside from being lesbian, the women who participated in this study differed in other ways from the stereotypical women of the time. For example, women generally were not encouraged to attend college. They were, however, expected to get married. Even after World War II's GI Bill opened college campuses in greater numbers to women, society decreed that women should attend for no longer than two years, the time expected to find a suitable husband. Although the women interviewed were diverse in terms of class background and income, a surprising number had attended college. 29% of the women interviewed had some college, 21% had an undergraduate college degree, and 43% had a graduate degree, and 7% had a high school diploma or less. More than 50% of the women had been married, and 42% had children. Of these, some had acknowledged their lesbianism, but had given in to social pressures and married. Others had repressed their lesbianism, especially to themselves, and had married. A few had admitted their lesbianism, at least themselves, but stayed married until their children were grown and then divorced. 53% of the women were retired from a job or career. However, they continued to do volunteer work, hold full and or part-time positions, and pursue education, hobbies, travel, and a variety of interests. For these women, Retirement has not led to status. Status. S state, it doesn't matter. Their household incomes range from $10,000 to over $100,000. Of the 47% who had not yet retired, a number continued to work well into their 60s. One woman had no immediate intention to retire, even though she was in her early 80s. 94% of the women described their health as good or excellent, although 17% acknowledge serious health problems or a major disability. 65% of the women had partners. 35% were single or their partners had died. Geographically, 37% lived in California, 36% in Washington, and 27% in Oregon. In putting this book together, we recognized that what the women had to say was the most important aspect of it. To that end, we have quoted them extensively. However, we have not quoted equally from all 62 interviews. Rather, we selected quotes that were representative of a particular experience. As promised, we have changed the women's names and identifying information for reasons of confidentiality. Generally, the women told us that being interviewed was a rewarding experience, even a freeing one. We too benefited tremendously from this process. Meeting these women, all of whom were, intentionally or not, pioneers in the gay movement, was exciting and memorable. We thank them for the privilege of being allowed to share their lives 
even for a short time. The life experiences of these lesbian elders provide the basic material for this book. How these women lived, the choices they made, and their reasons for making them can be understood only within the context of the changing perception of homosexuality throughout the 20th century. Thus, historical background is central to this project. So, some historical background. Early history. If we are to understand the importance of these elder voices and the significance of their message in today's world, we must listen to them within the context of their time, not from the perspective of the 21st century. We must understand the culture, the politics, and the social mores of the era in which these women came of age. Each of us is the product of history, and the women here are no different. If coming of age is defined as the years leading up to and including the generally defined legal age of 21, the years that shape and establish a person's identity, then familiarity with the history of the years spanning 1900 through 1969 is necessary <laughs> 69 is necessary in order to comprehend the lives of the women in this book. If we are to understand the fear, rebellion, compromise, loss, resiliency, courage, and tenacity it required to be lesbian prior to the late 1980s, we must not lose sight of the fact that to be homosexual was to be considered a pariah, a criminal, and or a sick individual subject to voluntary or involuntary medical cures, including lobotomy. Above all, if we are to understand the events and forces that shaped these women, we must approach their chronicle from the social history of lesbians in the 20th century. Up until the early 1900s, lesbianism was viewed as a relatively innocuous occurrence that prepared women for real sex. That is, sex with a man. A woman who maintained a long-term relationship with another woman was said to be in a Boston marriage. This term conferred respectively respectability okay. This term conferred respectability to the relationship between two women, generally educated and of the financially secure or up middle or upper classes, who lived together in what was considered a marriage, and thus helped to keep them from becoming a social and or economic burden to their families. Often one woman assumed a more assertive, masculine role and dressed in a masculine fashion, while the other assumed a more feminine role, dressed accordingly, and ran the household. The ladies of Langolin, Eleanor Butler and Sarah Ponzonby, Sarah Ponzonby, who had a more than 50-year relationship, are an example of such an arrangement, as are Willa, Catherine, Edith Lewis, together for 40 years. Novelist Sarah Orne Jewett and Annie Fields, Irish writer, Edith Somerville and Violet Martin, Rosa Bonner, painter, and Natalie Micus, Mary Woolley, president of Mountain Holyoke College, and Jeanette Marks provide additional illustrations of these committed relationships. Women during this period had few rights outside the control of a male family member or husband. However, those in Boston marriages achieved more independence and control over their lives. In addition, a growing number of young upper and middle class women were attending women's colleges, and articles in popular magazines and newspapers endorsed and promoted the many benefits of education and special friendships. The early 1900s saw an increasing prosperity in the United States, which led to a growing middle class with a strong sense of social and 
political responsibility, and a mounting sense of optimism. In spite of their prominent involvement in such progressive movement reforms as child labor, banking regulation, and food standards, people in the middle classes found time to indulge in their increasing interest in the medically deviant and grotesque. For instance, Magnus Hirschfeld, Sigmund Freud, and Havelock Ellis were publishing studies about flagellation, sadomasochism, homosexuality, and the like. Okay, side note. When, when people think that kink is a part of the LGBT community, like, <laughs> that's what flagellation is, right? I think, I think that's right. Okay. After 1910, as a result of the medicalization of lesbianism and the growing public knowledge of the dangers of lesbianism to young women, the popular media no longer looked favorably on women's education and independence. College-bound young women and their parents were now warned of the temptations and corruption awaiting them, depravities that von Kaff-Debing, Ellis, and Freud had added to the psychological and medical lexicon and the vocabulary of the knowledgeable public, along with the terms homosexual and lesbian. The public heeded the warnings, increased newspaper coverage, and very visible police raids of bars, balls, and clubs catering to gays and lesbians became almost indispensable in keeping the majority homo heterosexual society... Wait. I lost what I was doing. Okay, hold on. Uh, visible police raids of bars, balls, and clubs catering to gays and lesbians became almost indispensable in keeping the majority heterosexual society aware of the homosexual threat to the country's morals. Such stories and incidents likely increased the sale of newspapers, and in the process reinforced the message that deviance would not be allowed. Now that homosexuality was linked to mental illness and the criminal world, visibility, however limited, was no longer tolerated. In the glare of such public knowledge and scrutiny of the perverse, any single, independent, professional woman was often assumed to be a lesbian. For lesbians seeking protection in Queen Victoria's ap apocryphal dic Oh my god, I don't know how to read. For lesbians seeking protection in Queen Victoria's apocryphal dictate that lesbians did not exist, Invisibility neither ensured safety nor provided peace of mind. In fact, public suspicions about the relationships of women educators, such as Mary Woolley and Jeanette Marks of Mount Holyoke College, and M. Carey Thomas and Mary Garrett of Burn Mawr College, led to their discomfort, fear, and change of living arrangements. Young men, also, did not escape examination. They were admonished to be manly and to avoid the sink of pansy pansyism that had been personified earlier by Oscar Wilde and had so shocked society on both continents. Both? Oh, I guess that just means Europe and North America. Young men also... Oh, I read that part already. Um, no longer was it acceptable for men to engage in sex with an effeminate male or pansy as a substitute for sex with a woman. What before had been passed off simply as a means to satisfy the natural drives of men when women were not available was now viewed as evidence of perversion. World War I The forming and reforming of political and military alliances such as the Franco-Russian alliance and the Triple Entente has 
as well as the escalating crisis in Morocco in 1911, set in motion ominous rumbles in Europe. When war broke out, the developing war technology quickly killed the men and the horses they rode. It killed the French soldiers in their bright blue tunics, who marched into battle in disciplined formation. It killed Englishmen, Germans, and when the United States entered the war in 1918, it killed the Doughboys. The war changed the world. Europe was devastated and struggled to rebuild. Germany was burdened by enormous debt. The United States became a creditor nation with loans and investments in Europe. America was changed. Like it or not, the country was now part of the international scene. No more isolation. The growing public sophistication that came from greater involvement in other parts of the world led to an increasing awareness of same-sex love. The troops had spent time in Paris. Gays and lesbians met others like themselves. They frequented homosexual clubs, and many experienced Parisian society, which was more tolerant and accepting of homosexuality. After the war, the question for Americans, gay, lesbian, and straight, was now, how do you keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? It, it's written out like that. P-A-R-E-E. -E. I'm not being, like, pretentious, like... <laughs> okay. The answer was, he did not. Straits and gays returning from the war migrated to the larger cities in search of opportunities or simply as an antidote to the sameness and predictability of farm and small town life. Gays and lesbians in particular sought the more tolerant climate of larger cities where they were more likely to meet others like themselves. Automobiles and trains provided mobility for all classes of society and changed the way people lived and played. New York, Chicago, and San Francisco, all with reputations of anything goes, became meccas for the avant-garde, bohemians, and gays and lesbians, as did Greenwich Village and Harlem in New York, Southside Chicago, and the Tenderloin in San Francisco. Jazz, blues, <laughs> I said blues, like, from Arrested Development. <laughs> okay, jazz, blues, bathtub gin, Speakeasies, drag balls, sin, sex, masculine women, and effeminate men proliferated. Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey defined convention and shout oh defied convention and shouted out that they may say I do it, ain't nobody caught me, sure got to prove it on me. And Gladys Bentley, all three hundred pounds of her in white tuxedo and top hat, attracted long lines of whites, blacks, straights and gays to her shows. Nobody played the piano and sang like Gladys. She was a queen for the dirty ditty, double entendre, and low-down blues. Reform in the air. Although it is the bobbed hair and bathtub gin set that seems to have left its mark on the post-war years, these people were not, in fact, representative of the majority of society. The older middle-class majority found such fast-living antics deplorable at best. Certainly, the hobnobbing and sexual experimenting going on in the big cities was evidence to the majority that society was in decline. Legal means and social pressures were used to counteract what many feared to be an increase in homosexuality. Such lowering of morals was directly due, many believed, to homosexuals being allowed to serve in the military, and to the corrupting influences of foreign lands. The morally righteous found con what? Okay. 
The morally righteous found confirmation of America's decline in the events of the Newport Naval Station scandal of 1919. The business community and moral reformers, concerned about the large number of effeminate sailors who cruised the cliff walk and congregated at the local YMCA, brazenly soliciting homosexual sex, supported the U.S. Navy in a homosexual witch hunt. The Navy sent out decoys and trapped the sailors and charged them with criminal acts of sodomy, drug use, and the like. In keeping with the mores of the times, the decoys, who openly testified to having had sexual relations, which some said they enjoyed, with the sailors in question, experienced no repercussions, no stigma, no questions of ethics. Not one of the more masculine men who the sailors serviced faced arrest or prosecution. This fact speaks volumes about the period regarding homosexuality and the attribution of specific sexual acts to gender roles. That is, the manly man was considered manly as long as he was serviced by an effeminate man. It was the effeminate man who went against nature. The message of the entrapment and prosecution of the sailors by the Department of the Navy was not lost to lesbians. It was another reason to move further into invisibility, even though women were rarely, if ever, arrested and prosecuted. The reformers also targeted the tolerant atmosphere of the big cities, which they believed encouraged sin. It was in this atmosphere that Henry Gerber and six of his friends founded the Society for Human Rights in Chicago in 1942, the earliest documented homosexual emancipation organization in the United States, with the goals of educating the public and bringing about legal reform. They also published a journal, Friendship and Freedom, which reported on the society's activities. In 1925, police raided Gerber's house and confiscated his papers. He and other members of the society were arrested and jailed for three days without charges. Gerber lost his job, and the society was disbanded. Not surprisingly, during this period, so-called patriotic societies flourished. These right-wing conservative groups used intimidation to promote white power through the control of education, businesses, and the public at large. The Ku Klux Klan experienced rapid growth and held picnics and massive hooded parades. Less civilized activities included cross-burnings, beatings, and lynchings. They focused their hate on blacks, Catholics, Jews, immigrants, and homosexuals. While the market, despite some warning signs, continued to gain, the moral reformers did not. The high-living, speakeasy-hopping, drag-ball-attending, drug-and-sex-experimenting of the young and the Gatsby set appeared to be on the rise. Even the well of loneliness, banned in England and declared by the conservative Sunday Express to be nothing but an unutterable putrefaction, what does that mean, was published in the United States, and worse yet, was being widely read. Oh, okay, so to be clear, the title is called The Well of Loneliness. It, it's hard to indicate italics when you're reading out loud. Okay. The reformers need not have worried, however. Its author, Radcliffe Hall, believed in the theories of Ellis, namely that inverts were born that way and destined to be miserable. And von Kaftebing, who believed inversion resulted in anti antipathic sexual instinct, even though he did support efforts to repeal paragraph 175 of the German law that made sexual relations between adult males a crime. In melodramatic style, 
Hall espoused Ellis's theories in particular. Her novel's turgid prose and depressing plot portrays a lonely, mannish lesbian doomed to a life of seeking the love that dare not speak its name. Shunned and enduring social condemnation, she learns that nature, i.e. heterosexuality, will triumph. The extent of the well of loneliness as influence on lesbians of the 1920s through the 1960s is difficult to assess. Although the book presented a negative portrayal of lesbian life, it was still a representation of lesbians. Even if many lesbians found the novel to be depressing at best, its depiction of Parisian lesbian enclaves showed that all lesbians were not living lives of anguish. Just how many lesbians who read Hall's book recognized that Valerie Seymour was based on the American expatriate Natalie Barney, or that the descriptions of gay bars were exceedingly accurate, it is obviously unknown, and in the long run does not matter. What is important is that, for better or worse, the well of loneliness showed that resistance to heterosexual conformity was a real possibility. This resistance was manifested in a number of ways, especially in finding and meeting others, in spite of the very real dangers of discovery. Another significant message conveyed by the book was this. The U.S. public received confirmation that lesbians were predatory and perverse and, worse yet, mannish. With such hue and cry, the defenders of public morals announced that the publication of Hall's novel was but further proof that the decline and fall of the United States was at one perverse act away. Government passed and enforced laws that criminalized homosexuals and drove them underground. Even worse, some lesbians accepted lesbian life as described by Hall. They embraced it, took it as a truth, and were frightened by what it portrayed. Crash and Reform, The End of Gatsby By 1919, Berlin had replaced Paris as the open city of Europe. The city's temptations and vices appeared in guidebooks, such as What's Not in the Baedeker Guide, 1927. Magnus Hirschfeld's okay, Institutes of Sexology provided scientific public lectures, research, medical care for sexual dysfunction, and a very popular museum of sexual AIDS, which was a major attraction for tourists, homosexual and heterosexual. Wait, is that basically just like a museum of sex toys? Okay. Homosexuality flourished in this atmosphere, but in 1933, in an economy racked by worldwide depression, unemployment, at devastatingly high levels and merciless inflation, Hitler came to power. Oh my god, just that sentence brought like tears to my eyes or something. Oh my god. Okay. FDR won the 1932 presidential election and Hitler seized power in January 1933. The Great Depression was, of course, a world depression that saw the rise of fascism in the United States as well as in Europe. Black shirts marched in Italy, brown shirts marched in Germany, and silver shirts marched in the United States. Okay, side note. Um, and now in Alberta, we've got yellow vests who are fascists. So it's just interesting how they never change. Like, 
Okay, going back. In Germany, Hitler denounced Jews, homosexuals, and international bankers. In 1935, under the guise of refining an unfettered hedonism and restoring family values, Hitler acted on the authority of the newly amended paragraph 175 of the Criminal Code and began the Nazi roundup and imprisonment of homosexuals. In the United States, Father Charles Colin denounced Jews and international bankers and, along with other moral reformers, condemned homosexuals. Banks failed. Unemployment grew exponentially, as did lines at soup kitchens, and men abandoned families to hop the rails or build Hoovervilles. Fascism in the form of Father Cullen and his radio broadcasts gained huge audiences. The American